Um, great to see you, everybody. Good morning. Uh, our boiler's going to take a long time to get sorted out, so put your thermals on when you come to church. It could be a long winter, and let's pray like Jeremiah did in chapter 20, that his word would be in our hearts like a fire. Amen. Um, I want to invite you this morning on a three-year journey. I don't know the last three-year journey you took, but beginning today, we're going to go on a three-year journey on Sundays, and we're going to read through the next 18 months every single verse of Luke's Gospel. That's going to get us to the end of April 2024, and then where... Uh, Luke finishes is just outside Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world at the time. And then on the first Sunday in May, we're going to go into the book of Acts. I'm going to read every single verse of the book of Acts. And that's going to take us through to the beginning of 2026. Why are we doing this? Because I I don't know about you, uh, I really do not want to make Jesus a figment of my imagination I don't want my cultural trappings to put uh, who he is in a box. I don't want my understanding of Jesus to be laced with the, the kind of stuff in our culture that maybe is too much in me, needs shaking out of me, so that I can really engage with him. And uh, just as I reflect on my life post-COVID, I just want it to be, yeah, I just want it to discover afresh with you an authentic Jesus-shaped Christianity. Not Christianity with a few verses from Ephesians and a few from Isaiah, you know, our favorite books, but literally taking this man, Jesus, incarnated Son of God, and discovering who he is, what he did and taught, as Pam read to us uh, from Acts 1, verse 1, and, and to find his call afresh to follow him, to become like him, and to have our lives shaped by him. Are you up for that? Yeah. Right, second reason we're going to do this Uh, And reading through uh, Luke and Acts is about 28% of the New Testament. So we're going to get a third of the New Testament done together over the next three years. Secondly, we're going to go into Acts because it is a part two, as Pam so brilliantly shared with us. Uh, Luke and Acts are a part two, even though uh, John's gospel comes in the middle Uh, They're part one in the gospel, part two in the book of Acts, because I want Jesus' body to be authentically shaped as he desires, not as we might think it is. Now, what's Jesus' body? It's the the church. And so we're going to get back to what those first followers of Jesus were sent out by him into the world and discover the same vitality, the same dynamism, the same power, the same unity, the same grace, the same love that rested on that church that led them right throughout the Holy Roman Empire. So we're going to go on a voice to become together an authentically shaped, Jesus-shaped body of Christ, which is the church. The third reason we're going to go on this journey is because I want us to discover afresh the power of the gospel, the gospel being the good news about Jesus, not even a thing in and of itself, the the message and witness of Jesus to transform the world. Now, if I asked you, does the gospel transform the world? You'd probably go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I want to engage in it afresh. 
Because what happens in the Gospel of Luke, it starts exactly as Pam shared, very, very small. It starts in obscurity. It starts, as we'll read next Sunday, with an elderly couple. Socially awkward because they were childless. An elderly couple through whom is brought the last but the greatest prophet who is the forerunner of the Messiah. When he first received his prophetic uh, word of the Lord in Luke chapter 3, Luke makes sure that we don't miss the fact that God doesn't go to the ruler, the king, the governor, all of those. The word of God comes to John in the wilderness. And so the gospel begins in in obscurity, but where the gospel of Luke finishes is just outside Jerusalem, where the disciples see Jesus ascended into heaven. Jerusalem would have been the center of the Jewish universe. So the gospel goes from the wilderness, from a, a, a socially kind of looked down on elderly couple, it goes from there right to the center of the Jewish universe. But where does it finish in the book of Acts? You may not have read it before, but the gospel finishes at the end of the book of Acts in Rome, the center of the known Gentile universe. It would be like the gospel landing in Beijing, the center of worldly power, or Washington, D.C., or the city of London. And and the reason I want us to engage with this is because we've been given this glorious presence, this glorious message, this glorious salvation, and it's for the church. It's not for us to look down on ourselves. It's for the church, but through the church to transform the world. And as I look at the world today, it is crying out for hope. It's crying out for answers. It's crying out for peace. It's crying out for certainty. And we've been given the message of Jesus into all of that. And we cannot keep it to ourselves. So I want to discover afresh with you how it really does transform the world. And let's not forget that within three short centuries, in the most totalitarian, one of the most oppressive regimes that history's ever known, after three short centuries from this elderly couple, these band of you know, ruffian sort of getting it wrong disciples, in three short centuries, the Holy Roman Empire converts to Christianity. It's stunning. Now, when we talk about transforming the world, what that literally means for you and I is not necessarily Beijing or DC or the city of... It's our homes, our home life our families, our households. It's with our work colleagues. It's in our communities, with our schools, with our businesses. And I, as we look ahead as a church, I really want us to discover together that this gospel, when it goes forth, it changes everything, and it has to change everything. Okay? You up for that? It's cold, I know, but put your coats on, buckle up, here we go. Right. Fourthly, the second, uh, not the second, the fourth, I've just said fourthly, but it says the second here, so the fourth slash second theme flowing through Luke and <laughs> the second, um, the, the fourth theme flowing through Luke and Acts is how the gospel transformed the world, transforms the world. And the transformation occurs not through strength, not through influence, not through giftedness, not through wealth or status, 
The gospel occurs through death to self to follow Jesus. As everybody looked on at the transformation going on in these disciples, they were like, oh my goodness, something's going on, we haven't got it. And they began to be drawn or repelled, which we'll come on to in a minute. It occurs through a death to self, in humility, in servanthood, and a willingness not to go through the popular, culturally acceptable entrance, but in the words of Luke 13, 24, through the narrow door of a surrendered life to Jesus. And Luke opens this theme in chapter 1 through Mary's worship song. She bursts out uh, halfway through chapter 1 in what what, uh, many might know as the Magnificat. And she says, God, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent empty away. The transformation of the world occurs not through accumulating all the symbols that society would say cause us to have influence, but through the the self-crucified life, dying to ourselves, that Christ will be raised within us and we can shine him forth into the world. The subversion that we find, particularly in Luke's gospel, is where the powerful and the lowly are turned upside down in the new priorities of the kingdom family that Jesus creates. Think about it in this way. Women get a massive spotlight in both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It would be unthinkable for the resurrected Jesus to have revealed himself first to women outside the tomb. And Luke makes sure we don't forget that. First to the women. He makes sure that we understand in his gospel that it was the wealthy women providing for the ministry, funding the ministry of Jesus and the disciples going forth. He makes sure that we pay attention to the fact that people like Lydia come into the narrative, that it's not sort of a great man and his pretty you know, wife tucked under his arm. It, it, that he makes sure that we understand that women have an equal leading part to play in the going forth of the gospel in the, in the transformation of the world. This is the subverting of the worldly priorities, worldly values that we find in Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. How might this apply to us? Well, I want to lay my life down for Jesus, and I know you do too. I know you do too, because it comes out in our worship and our our hunger for his presence. But I just want to, don't you want to just crucify the flesh? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If our lives ended tomorrow, then we don't have to be without hope, because we get to be with him. And if he gives me a tomorrow after tomorrow, then my goodness, it's going to be him first and none other. Most of the, in fact, I think all the apostles who were the most successful church leaders ever, weren't they? Yeah? There were 12 of them, and they transformed the Roman Empire. They're the most successful ever. Most of them were martyred and killed. The self-crucified life. Peter wouldn't even let himself be crucified normal way, but asked that he be turned upside down because he didn't find his life worthy enough to go in the same way as Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Discovering the gospel way of transformation that occurs through self-crucifixion. And this brings us on to our 
fifth slash third theme, <laughs> which is that true Christian living endures the ever-present shadow of opposition. The ever-present shadow of opposition. In Luke's gospel, kind of coming into focus, just right throughout, you've got this sort of dark figure of Herod and this sort of lurking menace. The same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist and is, is kind of intrigued but endangered by Jesus. And finally, you have this coming together of Herod and Pilate and they make this pact. They'd hated each other before then. They make this pact to snuff out Jesus, our Messiah. The same way that the, the Pharisees and Sadducees dogged the ministry of Jesus, the Judaizers dog the apostolic church throughout the book of Acts, I want us to learn that when we have opposition, it doesn't mean that we're not living right for Jesus. The ever-lurking shadow of evil and opposition is part of life for the Christian. Cultural acceptability and pleasing everybody will only get us so far if we want to be faithful to God. And we're living in a day and age now where it's becoming, there's a divergence between what it means to live for Christ and what it means to live according to the values of the world. Our um, son was on a, uh, a school trip and he offered to pray for one of his friends, I think because they um, had pain in their back or something. Uh, this girl, and she declined. Then it was half term, and when he got back after half term, a teacher came to find him because this girl had complained about the offer of prayer. We're living in a society of offense. And we need to not be ar arrogant, ignorant, bullish, and all of that. But we have to understand, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's going to be good enough for us. Paul said, didn't he, I want to share in the power of his resurrection. Like that bit, don't we? Resurrection, yay. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I think in this day and age, I want us to learn how to be humble and gentle, yet strong in the Lord so that we don't melt away in the face of opposition. And this is the equipping that I think the church needs to be resilient in Western culture in the days that are coming to us. You know, think about Jesus. You remember Isaiah 61, everybody's favorite passage? You know, the spirit of the Lord's on me. Jesus proclaims it in the synagogue. You know, you think it would be revival meetings. Get some speakers, we're bursting out the synagogue. The bit, you know, it's like everyone's, what do they do? They take him up to the nearest cliff and try and kill him. So discovering how to take our stand amidst the lurking shadow of evil and opposition. And Jesus really is our model. The sixth reason, slash fourth, is that is what we're going to discover in verse 4 of our reading today. Now we're going to dive into it in a moment, but I just wanted to say on Tuesday you'll begin to get a weekly email from Lou and I, uh, which is a personal encounter, short thing, built on the scripture we've read on a Sunday. So it'll be on Luke 1, verses 1 to 4 today. And there'll be four things, the passage, something to consider, a way of communing with God, and a catalyst 
to spark it into life. If you don't want to receive that, because we're not in the church living in a spirit of offence, please just unsubscribe. It's all good. Um, but um, if you unsubscribe from that, you won't be unsubscribing from the Chanctuary database just from receiving those Tuesday emails. Okay? So I hope that's a blessing to your heart and enables us to encounter Jesus as we go forward. Right. Just as we dive in, final bit of intro. Is everyone okay? Are you up for it? Three-year journey? Come on, I'm going to nail it. Um, just before we dive in, so who was Luke? He wasn't a disciple? Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of people would say he was a doctor. Hard to find like, real hard evidence of that being his profession. But the reason people say he was probably a doctor is because when he talks about Jesus healing diseases, he gives much more precise medical information than the other gospel writers. So from that, people deduce that he you know, must have had uh, some background as a physician. The other interesting thing that he could have been is had some kind of career on the seas. Because as we read the book of Acts, halfway through, you'll begin to notice, and sorry, let me just pause and just say, one of the most fun ways I've found, just blast it through, do the Gospel of Luke in one sitting or two sittings, if you can, over the next couple of weeks. You'll, it'll, it, you'll love it. And same with the book of Acts. But as you read through the book of Acts, about halfway through, the story changes from they and us, uh, from they, sorry, from they and he to we and us. And particularly on some of the voyages Paul takes on ships, it seems like Luke sinks in with him for those journeys and he just has detailed information, which is beyond my pay grade, of technical sailing uh, jargon that seems to suggest that he's very familiar, um, if not involved in, in that sort of stuff. What he is, is a skillful historian, hence the orderly account. And we're going to find out, as we go through this, how he pieces this together and what he's trying to do. Who's Theophilus? Well, Pam gave us a lovely introduction. There are two views on this, and it kind of doesn't matter too much, but just to give us, give us some keys as we, as we start getting into this. Um, it does help us understand that Luke's part one, Acts is part two. Theophilus, and he's referred to as most excellent, he could have been someone of quite high standing. He certainly could have been someone very wealthy, because to write a gospel would have required serious resources in those days to accumulate the scrolls, the papyrus, all of the materials that you needed in order to actually make it available. So he could have been Luke's kind of funder, benefactor, um, and hence Luke is sort of writing this to him to give him some honour and respect. Or, as Pam said, if you take the Greek word Theophilus, Theos, which means God, Phyllis, which means friend, he could be using that as a general expression to make sure that the key message of the gospel, uh, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, is reinforced. He could be writing generally to all the friends of God, all the Theo Theo Theophiluses, to make sure that we don't miss that what begins in obscurity is for every nation on earth. That's what's hinted at in the, in the heavenly languages at Pentecost. 
and the arrival in Rome as the center of the known universe at the end of the book of Acts. Okie dokie. Everyone all right? Final bit I'm going to say, and then we'll dive into these verses, is we've entitled this series, The Gospel According to Luke. And I just wanted to recognize that we're reading this in the 21st century, in the third decade, and when you say something like the gospel according to, we're trained from our culture to begin to ask questions now like, according to, okay, what's the sort of agenda behind this? Aren't we? What's the, what's the power play going on? It's not a new thing, but it's popularized now uh, in, our, in the way that we think in Western culture. And it's not a new thing, because it's, it's from sort of French early 20th century philosophy. But we, we, we're trained now to think, what's the agenda behind this? A great way of responding to that, when you think, what's the power, what's going, well, you know, what's the, what's the manipulation, what's the whatever going on, because it's according to Luke. You've got to remember, what's at the heart of this story? The heart of this story is a man who was wrongfully killed, who willingly gave himself, and even as they were stretching out his arms on the cross, was pleading with the Father to forgive the very ones who were killing him. And that's not really a manipulative power play. That's the bringing forth of the self-sacrificial heart of God who loves humanity so much that he sees beyond our brutality and our rejection of him to give his only son that we could receive forgiveness and freedom and salvation. Attached to this is the whole thing of perspectives. And you might talk with a friend and one of their objections sometimes could be, well, all the Gospels are different, aren't they? So how can we know any of it's true? You hear people say that? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Maybe you don't hear people say that. Well, yeah, the, the, the way of just handling this is, is like after Christmas, we'll have our first Sunday back in the new year, and I'll stand at the door and greet people, and let's say a family, one of you, walks in with your family. Uh, maybe you've got two children. I say, how was the holidays? They say, yeah, it was brilliant. We went off to Granny's house. And the younger child says, oh, it was amazing. We got loads of presents. And the teenager goes, oh, it was really good. We watched loads of movies. And the parents go, oh, it was brilliant because we had a bit of space and didn't have to cook and, you know, we got looked after. Presents, movies, getting cooked for. All of those things are true. They just landed on the, the different characters slightly differently. That doesn't mean that the trip to Granny's and all of those things didn't happen. Does that make sense? And it's the same with the Gospels. Each of them bring out different stuff. But what they're doing is they're telling you about the trip to Granny's house. Well, actually, much more importantly, they're telling you about the Son of God and who he was and the different things that, that, that they saw and heard and how they responded and the different ways that transformed the world. That doesn't mean it's not true. And actually, we have this in our, the way that we practice law. And at the nine, we had a lawyer here. Um, and that's why they get multiple witnesses. 
because no one perspective has the absolute scientific analysis of everything that happened. And so the judge and the jury have to say, out of all of that, out of all those different witness accounts, we have to decide innocent or guilty. Is this helpful? I'm just trying to arm you for when you're talking with colleagues or at home or or whatever, uh, as we take our stand in this culture. Right. Should we go for it? Verse 1 of chapter 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. Since many, just pay attention to that, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The first thing that jumps out from this is, think about what he said, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account. Think about this for a minute. We've got Luke's Gospel, we've got Matthew and Mark and John, but clearly there were a bunch of different accounts going around, a bunch of different potentially Gospels going on. Many have undertaken So for the spiritual cynic, firstly I want to say 2,000 years ago, everyone was talking about it. And everybody was writing about it. So something significant happened. But what that does then is it raises the question for us, what was it about these four that set them apart? Or what is it even about the Bible that sets it apart from other great writings 2,000 years ago. Because the Bible says of itself that this is God-breathed, useful for teaching and correction and rebuking and comforting and all those things uh, that Paul writes to Timothy. So it refers to itself as being God-breathed, and Jesus clearly referred to the Old Testament scriptures as God's word, But what makes it, what sets Luke's account and what sets the scriptures apart? And how do we relate to it as God's word to us? And I hope this is helpful to you. I'm going to offer three reasons why we can trust this, not simply as interesting or prophetic, but as God's word to us to submit our lives to as a revelation of his son Jesus the living word. The first is the weight of history. The weight of history. Around the third century, all the church leaders at that time, amidst all the various manuscripts, oral reports, eyewitness accounts that have been handed down, written scrolls, a consensus arose amongst the leaders of the church then. They came together that 66 of these were set apart from the rest as God's word to us, as authoritative scripture, as God directly speaking through what had been written to his people. 
And though, so when we take Luke's gospel, though this is written by Luke, what we're actually doing is submitting our lives to hear the living God speaking through this gospel into our lives. And the weight of history is something that we can begin to take on on trust. Because we all take things on trust, don't we? You got in your car today, some of you, and you drove to church. But what you didn't do after your breakfast was dismantle the car, take all the bits off, analyze the brake pads, check out all, you know, check the levers were properly connected, the electrics and all of those things. You trusted that from yesterday it would work. You trusted the guy who serviced it and MOT'd it, they wasn't lying to you. So we live our lives on trust. And, we'd ha- we, and so when hundreds of millions of people have also agreed with those early church leaders that this is God's word, these 66 books, then we can go, okay, we need to pay attention to that. Now, if you get your car MOT'd and it's faulty and you talk to your neighbour and they had theirs MOT'd and it, it's faulty and the next one and the next one and the next one, then you realise, okay, I'm, I'm being taken out. You know, I'm, something's wrong here. I can't trust this, these people. So you look at it again. But when you find millions of people have also trusted that this is God's word to us, then it's worth paying attention to. Secondly, the miracle of the coherence of Scripture. The miracle of it. 66 books written over hundreds of years into different civilizations, different cultures at various stages of development, and yet all carry the same stunning, beautiful narrative of a creator who couldn't bear to be without something he created in a personal way, who even when his created image bearers rejected him, gave opportunity after opportunity to turn again. And when even those wouldn't work, sent his only son, came himself, to rescue us back in the most brutal way that any of us could imagine. And that coherence, it flows throughout, and it's just a miracle. So that's the second thing that makes us pay attention and go, man, this is miraculous. This, is, this must be God's word, God's word to us. The third thing is the impact. Because when we read the scriptures and we slow down, not to just get through it because then I'll feel like an okay Christian... You know, when we actually read it and submit our hearts to it, what we find is that it's a doorway into the very presence of God himself. Luke brings this out at the end of his gospel. Do you remember those two punks who got fed up with, even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. He told them, told them, told them. After observing that, they were so despairing, they decided to set off away from Jerusalem on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. And Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, draws alongside and he starts showing them from Moses, the Moses, the the Exodus, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it all relates to Jesus. And he goes through the prophets and it all relates to Jesus. And then he breaks bread and then he disappears. And... uh, This is how it goes in Luke 24. And then they go, oh my goodness, did not our hearts burn within us 
when he opened the scriptures to us on the road. It's like, it wasn't just heading of it. Oh, interesting. Oh, look how Leviticus relates to you, Jesus. Oh. No, it wasn't a university lecture. It's he was opening the scriptures and our hearts were burning. Our hearts were passionate. We, didn't, we couldn't articulate it, articulate it at the time. But we were just burning because we were near him and his presence was near us. And this is what happens. This is why this is God's word, that when we open our lives and we slow down and we engage with this, it leads us to the living word. It leads us to Jesus. And it leads us into the very presence of God. Or I should say, it leads us into an awareness of the presence of God who, who's never left, even though I just feel I'm, I'm dislocated from him today. I'm disconnected. But he's never left me. Psalm 73, I'm continually with you, forever at your right hand. So what it does is it transforms me to become aware that I'm actually seated in heavenly places, surrounded by innumerable angels in the the church of the firstborn. Here I am, and here you are, and I bow before you. So it's a doorway into his presence. Ah. So when Luke says he's bringing us an orderly account, he's bringing us the voice of God speaking into us. And when he says orderly, a sort of alarm bell should go off and remind us of Genesis 1. In the chaos of creation, in the formless void, what does God do? Sends lightning. No, no, he speaks. And we find this rhythmic, poetic, stunning, harmonious creation, order coming into chaos. And when Luke says, I'm writing an orderly account, what's happening is, as we live in a relativistic, anything go, da 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 da, you know, whatever the world is set, suddenly it's like, ah, I come into the peaceful, harmonious, beautiful, shalom like order which is the revelation of Christ, come to me through the gospel that you've written to us. I'm going to finish here. and um, Let's pick up verse 4. Now, why is he doing this? What's the purpose of Luke's gospel? Verse 4. So that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you've been instructed, so that you may know the truth. Now, there are two different words in the language the New Testament was written in for for knowing. And we, we kind of relate to those in English, but because we use the same word, we just imply it differently. There are there are two but in in that language there are two different words. The first is cognitive head knowledge. So I might say, I'm married to Louise, she loves her sleep. <laughs> what she really appreciates is a coffee first thing in the morning. There's certain things she doesn't like. She doesn't like the fatty white bit on bacon, <laughs> unless it's been crisp. You know, all of those are facts about Louise. But I also know her. I know her relationally. I know her experientially. I know how she feels. 
and what she's moved by. I know what makes her sad. I know what makes her joyful. I know what sets her on fire. I know how she, I just know how she thinks because I know her. And which know, bearing in mind this is an orderly account from a skillful historian, potentially a physician, potentially a sailor, bear in mind this is an orderly account, which know, is it cognitive head knowledge or is it relational experiential heart knowledge? It's the second one. It's the second one. So Luke sketches out all these events that have been fulfilled among us. And he's writing this so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you've been instructed. He's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to those who've been schooled. They've done a few schools of ministry. They've done a bit of Bible. They know, they know stuff. But he's saying, I'm writing this so that you might be brought into the relational, experiential knowledge of the truth. That word know in the language the New Testament was written in can also be used for the way that a husband and wife know each other from which children are conceived. It's an intense, passionate knowing of the truth. This This is why the heart burns when Jesus opens the scriptures. Now, as we take our stand in this moment in our society in Britain at this time, we need to know with certainty the truth. But as we read Luke's Gospel and as we read the book of Acts, a whole bunch of facts aren't going to cut it. It doesn't matter if you know 28... Oh, Luke and Acts together make 28% of the New Testament. That's not going to help you when we're confronted by all the storylines of, of you know, the third decade of the 21st century coming at us. But Luke's not writing that. He's writing that, that we would know the one who is the way and who is the truth and who is the life. So he's writing that, I'm going to write this orderly account that you may know and your hearts may burn with passion, that you may come closer to actually connecting, communing, and knowing Jesus because of what I'm writing. That because of that, he's going to shake out of you the bits that that really hinder your knowing of him, and he's going to download just a rich, intimate knowing of the second person of the Trinity, the Jesus that we long to gaze into and to walk with and always experiences never leaving presence in every single day. That's what this gospel is about. Turn to the end, chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 44. This is the resurrected Jesus talking to the disciples, having just revealed himself to them. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's the fulfillment of all of that. When you read the Old Testament, you read it saying, How, does this, how is this fulfilled in Jesus? How is this fulfilled in Jesus? And it opens up everything. 
Then, 45, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what he's saying is, all of these things pertain to me And the highest revelation of what pertains to me is the dying and the rising of the Messiah who died, suffered, and rose on the third day. And because of that, repentance and forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to all nations. So what he's saying is, I want you to know this so that you know me, so that it comes pouring out of you when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're with colleagues, when you're with neighbours, because it's got to go to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. We don't have to convert people, but we do need to let them know that there's someone energising, filling, leading our lives other than me. We do need to let him out of who we are, and that's the way we witness. And as we witness, we're going to need some power. And we're going to discover that in Jesus, because he's our model, but we're all going to get it when we hit the book of Acts. And and just to let you know, and just to let you know, you're allowed it before we get to the book of Acts. And see, I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So the father's desire is to send on you the same way that his son who emptied himself, the same way we are, self-crucifying, the same way Jesus self-emptied himself and needed the promise of the Father, the Spirit, the same promise is coming on you and I. So wait here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, opposite Jerusalem, lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from heaven and was was carried up into heaven. And we'll get a bit more detail about that in Acts chapter 1. And they worshipped him. That's the conclusion of this series. Worship in deed, worship in proclamation, worship in church, worship everywhere. They worshipped him because he's worth it and they knew him. And their hearts burned for him and him alone. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. Are you up for this three year journey? To God's glory. Over to you.